What does this gospel reading from Matthew mean to you? What does this text mean to you? I suppose if we were to take the time to hear everyone's answer, we would hear many different things. We might also hear similar things. After all, isn't it the case that if you take any verse in Scripture, it's going to have one meaning? Doesn't a text mean what the author meant it to mean? I want to explore that with you today. It's one thing for a preacher to stand up here in front of the congregation and deposit the meaning onto you for the, from the text of the day. In other words, I've done all the work for you. Here's what this text means. It's another thing for all of us to look at how and why we read the Bible the way we do. I believe it's something we don't consider very often. Or we take for granted that we read and hear the Bible and we have thoughts about it and respond to it, but rarely think about why we think what we think about it or why we act in response to it. And are we thinking the right thing? Is there a right way or a wrong way to find meaning in these texts in the first place? Let's find the answer. Not long after my family and I arrived here, and I, you know, I was getting to know everybody, uh, who everybody is and so forth, uh, a church member told me in conversation that she regularly participates in Bible study fellowship on weeknights. Now, I was still new to the ministry, so I had to ask what Bible study fellowship was. I didn't know. She told me it's an internationally recognized organization of lay people offering a system of structured Bible study. It's non-denominational, so there aren't any rules or uh, there aren't any rules about interpretation or specific teachings. Everyone who attends comes from different denominational backgrounds, and everyone is encouraged to gain their own meaning from the text that they study. Now, my first reaction upon hearing this was, I don't know if I like that. First, and this was my own pastor insecurity kicking in, I thought to myself, well, what's wrong with our Bible study here on Sundays? You know, is there something about me you don't like? You know, you don't like the way I teach or the way I, the way I preach? I mean, you don't approve of the Lutheran understanding of these scriptures? I've since learned to get over that and move on. It isn't helpful. But beyond my insecurities about why this member was going to Bible study fellowship was a deeper reason I didn't like it. Okay, so everyone sits in a room and listens to a layperson from whatever denomination conduct a Bible study, and everyone gets to chime in on what the verses mean to them. You know, it seems to me <clears throat> you could hear some very insightful and helpful things because generally people of faith are informed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God to conform the person's heart and mind to be more like Christ. On the other hand, you could also hear some very unorthodox things come from people's mouths. And those things might not be helpful to the conversation and building up of wisdom and faith. 
So to this day, I remain ambivalent towards Bible study fellowship. But that's not to say I believe it's wrong that we consider more than one meaning of a certain text or texts in Scripture. We all do it all the time. But I want to narrow the conversation now on two differences. How the early Christians in the first century found meaning in the Bible and how we 21st century Christians find meaning. Now, I didn't discover this myself. I'm not that perceptive. <laughs> One of my seminary professors, David Maxwell, noticed while reading the commentaries and sermons of the first and second century Christian preachers that the meaning of a text is, is to be found in the larger story of God's salvation of the world through his son Jesus. Contemporary preachers, such as yours truly, find meaning in the original intent of the human author as it was understood by the original hearers in its historical context. Okay, so if you're wondering, well, what does that mean? Let me give you an example. In this reading today from Matthew, early Christians, such as Cyril of Alexandria, Melito of Sardis, Gregory of Nyssa, I don't expect you to know who these, who these guys are. They didn't know the apostles, but they were only about 100 and 150 years uh, away from them. All right, much, they were much closer to the apostles than you and I are today, almost 2,000 years later. But these early Christian preachers, they would have read this text about Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm, and any meaning they would have found in it would have had something to do with the overarching narrative of Jesus Christ and what he came to do for the human race. Now, for me and my contemporaries, we find meaning in what Matthew intended his audience to find meaning in. His original audience were Jews in Jerusalem and Judea who had come to believe in Jesus. How did they hear this for the first time and what did they take from it? That's where we find our meaning today. And it's not an easy thing to do. You know, I could read this text to you in the original Greek that they used back then, but that wouldn't be helpful. I can even translate it word for word from the Greek into the English for you, and it would sound a little weird, but the original meaning wouldn't just pop out and reveal itself in some way. We'd have to bend those people in the first century. <clears throat> we can only imagine what it was like then, you know, what kind of clothes we would be wearing, what the, what the atmosphere might be like, what the buildings were like, and what the towns and cities were like. But, but the things of their culture that were ingrained in them are not the same for us today. So, what I do to give you the main mean is to give you the main meaning of the text as it was heard and passed down through each generation of Christians in the historic church. This is the Lutheran way of preaching, as well as in many other Protestant and Reformed churches. In this case of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Matthew wants the Jews of Judea and everywhere else this account will go out to know that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. 
He's the one. He has arrived. His power over creation shows it. And they can take heart that what they've been hearing about him and his miracles are true. The rule and reign of God is now among men and women. So, there you go. (laughs) Take what you will from that or what the Spirit builds in it from you. Amen. But wait, there's more. (laughs) We haven't talked about the other meaning of this text, the one we all know, the one we've seen in every Bible study, greeting card of encouragement, or Sunday school lesson. Do you know what it is? Jesus calms the storms in my life. Yep. If we were to have a Bible study fellowship kind of thing here at this church and invite the community and teach this text and then, every, and then ask everyone, what does this mean to you? How many people do you think would raise their hands and answer, Jesus calms the storms in my life? They'd all be up. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? But is this right? Can we say that? Or is it an incorrect meaning? Well, let's run it through the early church people first. What would Cyril and Melito and Gregory and Augustine say? They would say, okay, Jesus came to bring you peace and comfort. If it fits with the overall story of God's saving work, then fine. It may have even been the intention of the author. And if it wasn't, then it was the Holy Spirit's intention. All right, now what is the contemporary view on whether Jesus calms the storms in your life through this text? Another one of my professors, Jeff Gibbs, who is from this area, says no. It's not right. There's no indication in this text that Matthew wants you to connect the storm on the sea with the storms in your life. There's no signal. There's no signifier. There's no context that that's what he wants you to take from it. There's nothing here that the disciples serve as a symbol for every Christian in difficulty throughout time. And Matthew says nothing to the effect that Jesus' quieting of the storm is connected to some promise that God will deliver us from the storms of life. Now, Gibbs is not the only one with this view. In fact, much of Lutheran preaching warns about making this kind of move. I was taught that in seminary. The danger is if you apply the text directly to your life, you're engaging in a kind of mindless process of interpretation. Jesus calms the storms in our lives. He also heals the blind man, which means he heals all of our metaphorical blindness. He casts out demons, and boy, don't we all have demons. David slew Goliath, and so God helps us overcome the Goliaths in our lives, the bully on the playground or the overbearing jerk of a boss you have to face in the office every day. If and when you do hear this kind of thing from a preacher in a sermon, You can hear it coming from a mile away, can't you? But an even bigger danger is this method plays into the tendency we all have to make Jesus our personal servant and therapist for all the problems in our lives. Our blindness, our demons, our Goliaths, what have you. And some may be saying to themselves, 
Well, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> Jesus can help me with those. Just be on your guard so as not to reverse the relationship between creator and creature. Let's not become lords in the sense that make Jesus our servant. We know he is a servant because he said he is one, but the kind of servant he is and the way he served us is beyond every, anything we could ever have asked him or do ourselves. He gave himself over to sinful men to be crucified, a shameful, painful death in order to clear our debt of sin before our Creator. If Cyril of Alexandria and Gregory of Nyssa and all those church fathers were here right now and we told them about our contemporary problem of applying a text directly to our lives and turning Jesus into our personal servant, they would probably say, well, then don't always do that. But find meaning where you find it and when the Spirit gives it. Look for connections and patterns everywhere in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the sacraments and the church, and yes, even the struggles in your daily life. We're people. We can't do otherwise. We all come to the scriptures with life's experiences, its joys, its tragedies, our thoughts and feelings about these experiences. We cannot help but make these kinds of connections to God's word in our lives. So the answer is yes to all three. Find meaning in the Bible as it applies to God's overall story of salvation in Christ. Find meaning in what the author intended for his original audience, in their context, and find meaning in how it, it applies to your life. Expanding your heart and mind to the meaning of God's word for you is going to be better than contracting it. Amen? Amen.